The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. I remember when I was a kid, um, man, we had, of course, most of you know, we had seven, seven of us. And so, as you can imagine, we didn't fly very many places together uh, based on my parents' kind of budget concerns. And so, literally, we would go everywhere in a vehicle. And uh, one, I remember on a couple of occasions, my dad wanted to travel all the way back to Wisconsin. And so, he loaded all nine of us into this little van, and we did some cross-country trips and everything, and it was unbelievable. It was uh, quite the ordeal, a lot of fun before DVD players and cell phones and all those types of things. And so, I really enjoyed it. But summer season's coming, and uh, I know we have many people who are traveling here today and we're praying for their safety. Let me encourage you as you have time uh, to get on vacation here this summer. I would encourage you with this. Maybe when you're going wherever it is you're going, I'd encourage you on Sunday to try to find a church in the area. And uh, just that's always a good thing. And I know we're on vacation, but we never want to take a vacation from the Lord. Amen. And uh, what a good thing that is just to even while we're traveling and even when we're on vacation to just to kind of create margin there for time with the Lord in corporate worship. I, I truly did enjoy just being able to sing with you here this morning. And what a blessing it is just to worship our risen Lord and Savior. Well, as you know, we have been going through a series of messages the past few weeks entitled Shattered. And the subtopic is simply how to survive in a broken world. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of the indications of a life that is truly experiencing the grace of God, even in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, and in the midst of their trials. Somebody might ask, how do I know? How do I know if I'm experiencing God's grace? What, what does it look like? What are some of the indications of someone who is experiencing and appropriating God's grace in the middle of their trials? What does that look like? And what we've been saying is it looks a lot like Jesus. It looks very similar to the way Jesus looked. When he was going through his pain and his suffering and his trials. Our theme verse for this particular series has been Galatians 2.20. Where the Bible declares it's not I but Christ that liveth in me. How do we know when we're going through trials appropriately? How, how do we know if it's not just our flesh kind of buckling up under the pressure? If it truly is the grace of God flowing in and through us? Well... When Christ is living his life through us, it looks a whole lot what it looked like for Jesus when he was going through these things. Inside your service program, you'll find an outline that you can use to follow along through the message. I hope it will be a help to you as we study the Bible together this morning. If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand here uh, for the reading of God's Word as we read. The Gospel of Luke, chapter number 23. Let me give you some background here real quick before we dive in. Jesus has just been betrayed by his companion. He's been denied by his friend, abandoned by his loved ones, maligned by his countrymen, beaten by his tormentors, and now he's he's being crucified by his enemy. The relational, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual pain that Jesus is experiencing in this very moment that we're about to read about is literally comprehensible. And this is the context which leads us to the passage that we're about to read here today. The Bible says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 23 and verses number 32, And 
There were also two other malefactors, or we might say in our modern vernacular, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they came to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, these criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We're going to talk a little bit today on how do we respond to injustice. Maybe we would say it this way, how did Jesus respond to injustice? How did he respond when he wasn't being treated fairly? How how did he respond when, when he was wronged? And by getting a glimpse of what happens here in the life of Jesus, I hope it'll help us to see what God's grace wants to do in us And through us, even in our difficulty, shall we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we once again, we just come before you recognizing, Lord, that we're a broken people. Lord, we are in desperate need of your grace. And I pray that this morning that, Lord, you would use your word to make an impact in our hearts and lives. I pray for that individual here right now, Lord, who maybe has been abused. They've experienced injustice. They've been wronged. And and now they're struggling with how to respond. I pray that your word today would give them grace. I pray that you would bless, Lord, this time in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. A couple of years ago, uh, a friend of mine sent me a book entitled Unbroken. And uh, in fact, it was written about four years ago. It's, it's interesting, this book has been on the New York Times bestseller list for three and a half years straight. I mean, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. In fact, this week, this book right here, after four years, written four years ago, this week uh, sold the, one of the top ten copies. So more of this book. It was number ten uh, sales this week uh, in regards to this. And, and Unbroken is the story of a gentleman by the name of Louis Zamperini. He was born on January 26, 1917. As a 19-year-old, he was a standout track and field student at USC. In fact, uh, Louis competed in the 1936 Olympics and did extremely well. In fact, uh, he finished the 5,000 meter in first place. He won himself a gold medal. In fact, it was so impressive that Hitler himself wanted to meet this young man, and he had the opportunity of meeting the infamous dictator. Zamperini enlisted in the United States Armed Forces in April of 1942, where he was a pilot of a B-42 called the Green Hornet. Uh, This particular plane was notorious among the pilots as really being a defective, what they called a lemon plane. And how how many of you have heard that phrase before on a car? This car is a lemon? And that's one thing when you're uh, on the ground. That's another thing uh, when they're joking about it, you flying in a lemon, all right? And that's basically what he flew around in. In April of 1942, he was flying a rescue mission 850 miles south of Oahu. The uh, engine started to go out. They had mechanical difficulties. There was 11 men in that plane. And literally within a few moments, they had crashed into the Pacific Ocean. 
Louis was trapped in the rubbish underneath the ocean. In fact, as he was trying to break free, there were wires and metal all around him. And he remembers in that moment literally trying to free himself so he could make his way to the surface of the Pacific Ocean. And it just, it wasn't happening. He wasn't able to break free. And he remembers literally as everything started to go dark. And he remember thinking to himself, this is it. I'm going to die. He went to black out and just as about the time he blacked out, all of a sudden he kind of came to and somehow he was free. He was making his way to the surface and when he got to the surface, there was a life raft there waiting with two of his buddies. The rest had drowned in the wreckage. Miraculously, Louis was saved. The next several weeks were just horrendous. They did everything they could just to try to survive. They actually caught an albatross and they used the meat of that albatross one to eat and also to try to catch fishes. The problem with that though is as they were fishing they found that they started to attract a lot of sharks. And so literally every night, every day below their little raft swam these sharks just waiting to eat them. 26 days went by. On the, on the 26th day he said he was sitting out in the Pacific Ocean and he said it was so surreal Because literally it was one of these days without absolutely any wind. And the sun was shining really in all accounts a real beautiful day. And on this particular day there was no wind. There was no waves. And Louis said it was as if he was all by himself in the entire world. Here were these guys and it was like a sea of glass. Just the most surreal moment. Every direction as far as he could see. Just flat water. In the distance he began to hear something and... It was a plane. He rushed over to the part of the raft that had, of course, uh, you know, the opportunity for him to kind of, uh, you know, fire the flares. And as he fired those flares in the air, sure enough, that plane started to turn in their direction. It flew over them once. And as it was coming back in the other direction, all of a sudden they noticed something. It was not an American plane. It was a Japanese plane. And at that moment, the plane started shooting at them. Not knowing what to do, they literally dove into the ocean. And all of a sudden, these bullets are literally flying by them in the ocean that's trying to kill him. A couple of times this thing passed and Louis said he couldn't believe it, but though the raft had been punctured, nobody in the raft had been killed. The problem was now they were in the ocean and right below their feet were the sharks. They climbed back in, did what they could to patch up the hole in the raft and literally for the next couple of weeks continued to just float aimlessly through the ocean. On day 46, they finally saw land. They began to paddle to where the land was and literally within a few yards of getting to land, they were picked up by a Japanese boat. And there Louis was then taken as a POW, a prisoner of war. For the next two and a half years, Louis was captive of a Japanese military base. He was held in a filthy cell. He was subjected to medical experiments starved, beaten, interrogated. He was treated in the most inhumane ways. He was tormented by a monstrous prison guard captain named Mashiro Wontabe. He also was nicknamed The Bird. This horrible man was later included in General Douglas MacArthur's list of 40 most wanted war criminals in Japan. He was just a horrible, sick, sick man. The bird fixated on breaking this famous Olympian 
beat Louis relentlessly and, and forced him to do all kinds of horrible things, including slave labor. Eventually, Louis reached the end of his endurance. Two and a half years into this, with his dignity destroyed and his health fading, not being a Christian, he began to pray for rescue. And God answered his prayer. The war ended, and after three years of grueling torture, the men were finally released. But this was just the beginning of Louis' pain. After the war, Louis began suffering from severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Literally every night he would go to bed, his, night, his dreams would be haunted by visions of, of the bird strangling him, forcing him to do these horrible acts. One night in 1948, Louis dreamed he was locked in a death battle with the bird and a scream startled him awake and when he came to, he was on top of his pregnant wife with his arms around her throat, choking her to death. A few days later, his wife, Cynthia, walked in and found Louis shaking their newborn baby, trying to get her to shut up. And that was the last straw. She said she packed her bag, she was going to leave. Over time, Louis' rage hardened into a twisted ambition. He began to devise a plan where he would return to Japan, hunt down the bird, and literally strangle him with his bare hands. It was the only way he could think of to restore his dignity. And he became obsessed with the plan that would finally give him his revenge. In a moment, I'll share with you exactly what happened. But from this story, it's often been said, and I read in the book, that bitterness, resentment, and anger is like an acid that does more damage to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. And maybe you're sitting here today and, and you've been treated with injustice. Maybe you're here today and you've been wronged and you've been maligned and, and you've been treated extremely badly. And you might be thinking to yourself in this very moment, they don't deserve my forgiveness. The reality is they, may, they might not deserve your forgiveness. But by God's grace, you deserve peace. And peace is a result of forgiveness. Our theme for the message this morning, the thought that will frame everything else we say today, is simply this. Forgiveness, and forgiveness alone, is the antidote for bitterness. So this morning, we're going to look at two incredible realities regarding forgiveness from this passage. So notice with me in verse number 34... In verse number 34, the Bible declares here, He said, Father, forgive them. If you're used to writing in your Bible, I want you to circle those words, forgive them. Jesus offers this prayer of intercession, this prayer, Father, forgive them. He, he says it actually more than once. In fact, He says it several times. Uh, if we were to study this word forgive, in the Greek, the word is aphemai. 
If you study this particular term grammatically in the Greek, it is a word that is written in the imperfect tense. You say, what, what does that mean? It means literally that it has continuous action in the past. In other words, when it says here, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, it was as if he was saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It was as if he was saying it over and over and over again. That's what the imperfect tense means. Continuous action in the past. So as they were literally beating Jesus, he was praying, Father, forgive them. As they made their way and plucked out his beard, he was literally saying, Father, forgive them. As they mocked him and made fun of him, it was as if he was saying, Father, forgive them. When they put the crown of thorns upon his head and beat him with that cat of nine tails again and again and again, Jesus literally cried out, Father, forgive them. As they made him carry that cross up that Via Della Rosa again, Jesus declared, Father, forgive them. As he crawled and made his way to the cross and laid down his hands, as they took those nails and pierced his hands and pierced his feet, again Jesus declared, Father, forgive them. As he hung on the cross and he looked down and saw the crowd around him for which he was dying again, he uttered, Father, forgive them. Maybe you're sitting here today. And you feel like you've done the unforgivable. You say, Pastor, if you knew what I've done, if you knew my past, if you knew what I did last week, if you, if you knew what I did last night, and I want to declare something to you today. I want to remind you that our God, our Heavenly Father, is a God who is great in mercy. In fact, we're told in the Old Testament that His mercies are new every single morning. He forgives. Which leads us to our first thought today, and that is simply this. God has forgiven you. God forgave you. If you are a believer here today, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone to be your Savior, then the Bible declares that you have been forgiven and you have been forgiven indeed. God's forgiven you of your pride. Past, present, and future. He's forgiven you of your greed. He's forgiven you of your materialism. He's forgiven you of your slander. He's forgiven you of your complaining. He's forgiven you of your self-righteousness. He's forgiven you of your lust. He's forgiven you of your worry. He's forgiven you of your gossip. He's forgiven you of your anger. He's forgiven you of your hate. He has forgiven you of every single one of your sins. Past, present, and future. Praise God. Daniel chapter number 9 says, To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses. I love the plural there. Did you see that? Oh, He belongeth mercies. It's not just once. Forgiveness, not just once. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness. But notice this. 
even though we have rebelled against Him. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, get this, from all unrighteousness, all past, all present, all future. You, my friend, have been forgiven in Christ. Ephesians chapter number 1 and verse number 7 declares, in whom we have redemption through His blood. Who's it speaking of? It's speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. We have redemption in His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. He's imparted to you treasure. He's imparted unto you riches. And the riches are His grace. The riches are His mercy. The riches here is His forgiveness that He offers you. That sin that you committed when nobody was looking. That sin you thought no one would ever find out about. That sin that embarrasses you every time you think about it. That sin you want no one else to know about. The sin your parents don't know about. The sin your spouse doesn't know about. The sin your boss does not know about. And the sin you're hoping to keep covered till you go to the grave. That sin. That sin that left you broken. That sin that left you full of guilt. That sin that left you full of shame. That sin. I want to say that sin has been fully forgiven in Christ. It's forgiven. If you're a believer, if you've allowed the blood of Jesus to literally be put on your account, I want to declare to you, you, my friend, are forgiven indeed. You're forgiven. Isaiah 43 verse 25 says, I, even I, God says, I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. You say, why did he do it? For my own sake. This is crazy. God says, I I delivered, I forgave you. And God says, you want to know why I did it? I did it for me. Because forgiving you glorifies me. I did it for my sake. I did it for my glory. I did it for my honor. He says, I did it for me. Praise God, we get to enjoy the benefits. And I will not remember thy sins. God says, I have forgotten them. Have you? God says, I've forgotten. I've forgiven. And yet you still meditate on them. The shame. The guilt. Hebrews 10 verse 17 says, Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. There is no sin ever committed that it can't, there is no sin ever committed that it can't be buried in the oceans of God's mercy and forgiveness forever. I love the biblical imagery that the scriptures use when describing this theological ramifications. The Bible uses terminologies like this I take your sin and I have buried it in the deepest sea. He says, I've separated myself from your sin as far as the east is from the west. You say, what's so impressive about that? Think about it geographically for a moment. If if God were to say as far as the north is from the south, for example, we could measure that, couldn't we? You go north long enough, eventually you're going to start heading what way? South. 
You go south long enough and eventually you'll be going You can measure the north from the south. It's a measurable, quantifiable distance. But that's not what God says. He doesn't say, I've separated you from as far as the east is from the... He, he says here, not as far as the north is from the south, but the east is from the west. It is an immeasurable, immeasurable distance. <laughs> I heard about a couple one time. And uh, they've been married for some amount of time. And, and uh, one day they're just sitting there and, and the husband, he kind of leans over and he says, he says, honey, he says, uh, he says, I notice whenever uh, I kind of get angry or a little bit upset, says, you never really fight back, you know, I mean, and, and so he's kind of, you know, being transparent, he's like, you know, how do you, how do you control your anger? And she just kind of looks at him very matter of factly and says, well, that's, that's easy. I, I go and I clean the toilets. Her husband said, well, how does that work? She said, I, well, I just use your to- toothbrush. <laughs> now, aren't you glad that this is not the way God deals with our sins? <laughs> kind of like, yeah, I forgive you. It's going to be all right. And then like in this passive aggressive manner, like, yeah, I'll get them. Yeah. And he, he forgives. Our sin is a big deal. My sin's a big deal. Your sin's a big deal. But you have a great Savior. A Savior that was willing to bear the pain, the punishment, and the penalty upon Himself, bearing all the weight and punishment of your sin upon himself and on the cross Jesus forgives you Jesus forgives us so point number 1 God forgave you let's move on in a synoptic passage you say what's a synoptic passage Matthew, Mark, and Luke oftentimes tell the same events from different perspectives and so theologians refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as synoptic gospels because they are three different perspectives of the same events. And so this story in Matthew chapter number 27 gives us a very interesting perspective of what's going on here. In fact, the Bible tells us that after the soldiers had parted his garments and cast lots for his robes, as was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, I mean literally thousands of years before, The Bible goes on to tell us, after that, here's what the Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 36. After that, sitting down, they watched him. Here are these hardened soldiers, these battle-stricken men, these men who had seen it all. These men, in many cases, were highly cynical. They had seen the worst of the worst. They have seen it all. And yet something begins to happen. And the Bible says, they stop everything. And they just start watching. In fact, Matthew says for 18 verses, they watch him. At the end of the 18 verses, you say, why did they watch him? I believe after the fifth or sixth time of hearing Jesus say, Father, forgive them. 
And then again hearing Him say, Father, forgive them. And then again hearing them say, Father, forgive them. You see, these men were used to hearing men curse. They were used to hearing men blaspheme. They were were used to getting the breath of anger and madness as they were dying there on a cross. But this, this was totally different. And finally, they just stop everything and they watch. Matthew 27, 36. By the time you get to verse 54, the Bible says, And as they were watching, one of the centurions looked and said, Truly, this is the Son of God. There was something about the very forgiving nature of Jesus that revealed a divine essence. And one of the ways that we're, one of the ways we can test, one of the indications that we are appropriating the grace of God, one of the ways that we know that we're experiencing God's grace working in us and God's grace working through us is that there is an indication, there is a mark of grace and forgiveness that flows through us even in the midst of our deepest injustices. And this is how you know if you are being led by His Spirit. Not by the bumper stickers you put on your car. Not by the Jesus t-shirts you wear. Or the little fish buttons you have on. I'm not against any of those things. But you want to know the marks of authentic Spirit-filled Christianity is? A Christian that's appropriating the grace of God. A Christian that's truly allowing, not I, but Christ living through me. So what does that look like? It looks like forgiveness again. Forgiveness again. Forgiveness again. Forgiveness again in the midst of your deep, deep suffering and injustice. Which leads us to our next thought this morning. And our final thought, and that is this. God forgave you so you could forgive others. God forgave you so you could forgive others. Others. This is why the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter number 3 and verse number 13. And he declares here, forbearing one another. Bear it, he says. Bear the injustices. Bear the pain. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel, if any of you are in fight against anybody else, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to allow the Spirit of Christ to live through you. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. To allow God's grace to work in you and God's grace to work through you. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another. Now, I want you to notice this. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Based on the context, God is telling us to forgive those who have committed injustice against us. But get this. Not only does He say forgive. When the Spirit of Christ is working through you, 
and you're appropriating the grace of God and it's not you but Christ that liveth in you, one of the indications of that, not only do you forgive, but you are kind to them. You are kind to those who have hurt you. You are kind to those who have maligned you. You are kind to those who have thrown you under the bus. That co-worker that blamed you when everything went bad. When Christ is working, you can forgive and you can be kind. That relative that's been making your life miserable. When Christ is living his life through you. When it's not just you being, I'm a good Christian. I walk the walk and talk the talk and do what I'm supposed to do. But when when it's real. One of the marks is that your ability to be kind. Kindness to those who have done you wrong. Not just forgive. But be kind. That's how Jesus responds. And when you allow him, that's how he responds through you. That person in the church who knows how to get on your nerves. I want to say, forgive them. Christ wants to use your life as a conduit of his forgiveness and his kindness. Toward that person at your school that you just can't stand, students. God wants to use your life as a conduit of his forgiveness and kindness towards them. When he is truly in control, it's more than just wearing a Jesus t-shirt. It's more than just posting a religious picture on your Facebook There's forgiveness of the injustice. There's kindness toward the enemy. That is what God's grace does. Can I say this? Forgiveness was not given to you so that you could hold on to it. Forgiveness was given to you so you could share it with others. Those of you who have kids, uh, you'll know that training your kids and helping them appropriate God's grace and be conformed in the image of Christ once they're saved and they've come to know Christ can be quite a daunting task. (laughs) And a couple of weeks ago, one of my children came into the house and they were obviously distraught. One of the siblings had done something to them and uh, you could just tell they were just kind of overwhelmed and ah, you know. And my wife said to, to one of my children... What do you want me to do about it? Moms, you ever said this one? <laughs> what do you want me to do about it? And like very, very authentically and genuinely said, <laughs> one of my children said about their other sibling, can we just sell him? <laughs> in their mind, that just made perfect sense. <laughs> Mom's got all this other stuff in the garage getting ready to sell. <laughs> let's, let's throw the little guy in the mix. <laughs> When we've been hurt, it's very easy to become extreme in our response. 
And this is why it is so vital that we enter into the presence of Christ, where we abide in His presence, where literally we spend time with Jesus. Why? So He can begin to work in and through our lives. I'm not telling you here to try harder and you got to just kind of buck it up because you're a man, you're a Christian and you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to, I'm saying do this, run to the feet of your savior in humility and tell your heavenly father, you don't have what it takes and you need him desperately to live his life through you. That's, that's what I'm challenging you with. To run boldly to the throne of grace. To find help in your time of need. You don't need a six-step plan or a nine-step plan. You need Jesus. Now, just so people don't misunderstand what I'm saying, because there is that with a message like this, there might be some people with some thinking that takes this to a place that I'm not trying to take it. So I want to make three statements very quickly that I hope will caveat forgiveness by helping you understand what it truly is biblically. Number one, forgiveness is not the same as trust. You say, if I, if I forgive them, I, I, I just, I could never trust them again. God, God's not commanding you to trust them. He's commanding you to forgive them. Trust is something that is earned when another individual is being trustworthy. So don't think, I can't forgive because I could never trust them. Two separate things. There's a lot of people through the years, by God's grace, He's given me the ability to forgive that I don't trust in the same way I used to. I love them. I care for them. I'd cry with them. I'd put my arm around them. I'd hug them. But forgiveness and trust are two very separate things and we're not preaching a message on trust today. We're preaching a message on forgiveness. So I need you to understand there are differences. Forgiveness is not necessarily making everything the way it was before. When your heart truly forgives, it does not necessarily mean that everything goes back to normal. When there is forgiveness... When there is a spirit of forgiveness, there is an ability to just bear the weight of someone else's sin against yourself. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the moment you forgive, everything is automatically going to go back to the way it was. Number three, forgiveness is not where we begin to act like the victim. Well, I forgave them. And now my life is just... Miserable. You didn't forgive. Forgiveness is bearing the weight of their sin, absorbing, absorbing that weight, absorbing those consequences, and then taking those consequences in James 5 7, casting them upon God, for he careth for you. That, my friend, is forgiveness. Let me put this on the screens. We're getting ready to wrap this up. A person's ability to forgive is directly tied to their gratitude for being forgiven. God has not forgiven us merely for our own benefit, but has forgiven us to break the cycle of bitterness. 
God's desire is that His forgiveness not flow not just to us, but through us as well. My friend, God has forgiven us so we could forgive others. The year was 1949. And Louis had this incredible plan to destroy the bird. This captain who held him prisoner in Japan as a POW. In October of 1949, Cynthia, Cindy, made one last effort to save her husband and her marriage. She asked Louis to come to a tent meeting in Los Angeles where a very young preacher was preaching. His name? Billy Graham. For two nights, Louis sat in that tent as Graham preached the gospel again and again and again. And as Louis sat in that tent, all the guilt just began to weigh over him. He was so angry that Graham would speak of sin and the consequences of sin. And on the second night, Graham asked people to step forward if they wanted to declare and put their faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. At that moment, Louis stood up and stormed toward the exit. He had had enough of it. He didn't want anything to do with this God. He wanted nothing to do with this Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with what he called religion. And as he was making his way toward the back, all of a sudden he froze. In that moment, he had a, a flashback. Suddenly he was on a raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. He and his buddies were literally dying from thirst at this point. And as they were on the brink of death, floating in the Pacific Ocean, Louis looked up toward the heavens and he said, God, if you're out there, if you save me, I'll serve you forever. Literally in that moment over the raft, the rain began to fall. And his buddies began to drink from the water that fell from the sky. He was brought back to reality. There he was standing facing the exit door of that meeting. Not wanting Jesus. Not wanting God. The Spirit began to do something in his heart. He turned around and made his way toward the front of that meeting. Grabbed the hand of Billy Graham. Says, I need what you're talking about. And that day, Louis Zamperini put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone to be his Savior. Put his faith in him. In him alone. A year later, Louis was making his way back to Japan. He was making his way to a Tokyo prison where war criminals were serving their sentences. But things were different now. As he received the forgiveness of Christ, there was now joy where before there was only anger. His marriage was being restored His nightmares and flashbacks were now gone. 
And by God's grace, he had overcome his alcoholism. And he was on his way back to Tokyo, hoping to find the bird. But everywhere he looked in the prison, he wasn't there until finally one of the other men told him that the bird had killed himself just months before. And in that moment, Louis was struck with an incredible emotion. In fact, he was surprised by what he felt. Because it wasn't hatred or bitterness or resentment. It wasn't even a sense of relief. He was surprised by the fact that he felt sad and empathy for that man. Louis in that moment literally found himself overwhelmed with the emotions of compassion and forgiveness. And that moment he realized that for him, the war was now over. I want to say this to you today. To really live, to really live, we must forgive. Some of you think you're living, but you're holding on to that resentment. You think you're living, but you're holding on to that bitterness. You you think you're living, but your life is plagued with anger and hatred. And I want to say to you today, you have been forgiven so that you now can forgive. I want you to imagine, I mean literally, I want you to imagine, imagine what your life would feel like free from all bitterness. No longer having to replay the memory of what that person did to you again and again and again in your mind. Imagine being free of that. Imagine being able to go walk into that person at work, the workplace or in the store and not have your blood begin to boil. Imagine, imagine being free from that. Imagine from not having to allow someone else's past behavior to control your future emotions. I'm talking about liberation. I'm talking about being free. Finally being free indeed. Emotionally, spiritually, mentally free. Some of you are captive. You're captive in the cell of bitterness and in anger. You're shackled by resentment. And Christ offers you the key. The key out of your shackles. The key out of your cell. And the key is forgiveness. I want to encourage you with this today. That the ability to forgive and truly be at peace is possible. You say, I'm, I'm too old to be at peace. No, you're not. You say, I haven't been at peace for years. I want to declare to you by the power that is yours in the person of Jesus Christ, you can be free. You can be at peace. You can have victory. Because God's forgiveness is forging you into a new person. You're not who you once were. 
you're now being formed into a person who has the power to forgive the unforgivable. So here's my question. Who is it that God wants you to forgive today? Who's that person that every time you think about them, it just messes with your spirit? That person who didn't do something the way you thought should be done. Who is Christ calling you to forgive? He wants you to surrender to him and you say, I can't. This is what's great. Christ can. He can do through you what you can't do on your own. Forgiveness truly is the only antidote to bitterness, resentment, and anger. And by God's grace, you can be free. Shall we pray?